Thank you, team. Good morning, everyone. And good morning, church. Welcome to Calvary Monument Bible Church today. It's so good to be here with you on this Memorial Day weekend. Happy Memorial Day to all of you, and very thankful for uh, those who have uh, sacrificed and given up their own lives to defend the freedoms uh, that we enjoy here as a nation. And so we pause to reflect and to remember uh, our heroes uh, today. Thank you, Pastor Tom, for including that uh, memory and that reminder in your prayer as well. Our memory verse, and this is our last Sunday in May for this month, has been from Galatians chapter 5. We can say it together for one last time today. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 14. Yes, and indeed the events of the past few weeks in our country are a stark reminder that we could do a much better job uh, as a nation in living out and fulfilling uh, that command that we have been given. Last week, we started a study together through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is uh, one of the minor prophets. It's in the Old Testament. It's a very short, very small book. In fact, as I've shared with folks recently uh, about this and studying this topic, many, have, uh, many of you and others have shared with me, well, I've never done a study through the book of Habakkuk before, so uh, this has been interesting. And some of you actually have and have been willing to uh, share some notes from past studies that you've done, and that's been uh, helpful as well to reflect on those uh, thoughts and reflections through the book. But we summarized the contents of the book for the church last week in this statement. As we look at the book of Habakkuk, we might summarize his message in this manner. The world is broken. The law can't fix it. God is able. He hears us. He saves us. He will restore all things. We are to be faithful as we patiently yet actively wait. And sometimes, friends, as we're going to find this week and again next week, the waiting is very, very difficult. Last week, Habakkuk had questions for God. God responded to Habakkuk's questions, and the response that God gave Habakkuk was very concerning, even, in some ways, disappointing to Habakkuk. A number of years ago, there was a Christian author and scholar, his name is Philip Yancey, and he penned a book that was titled, Disappointment with God. I'd never read the book before, but I was in college, it was my junior year, and it, it happened to be required reading for one of the classes that I was taking uh, at Bible college. And I remember reading it and never considering in my life before reading that book that that would be an appropriate response for a believer disappointment with God. And in his book, Yancey explores many different approaches that a believer could take when faced with a distressing or difficult response or circumstance in their life from God. And while there are several quotable thoughts throughout his work relevant to our study through the book of Habakkuk, uh, one particular quote stands out, and he said this. Yancey remarks, quote, Can we live now? as if God is loving, gracious, merciful, 
and all-powerful, even while the blinders of time are obscuring our vision. End quote. And this leads perfectly into the portion of Habakkuk's prophecy that we are going to unpack today. The prophet has just poured out his heart to God. He's inquired about the violence and the unrighteousness and the sin of his own people. And he has questioned, how much longer, God, are you going to allow this to continue? And as God responds, the prophet finds himself thrust into a bit of a crisis of faith. Could a perfectly just and righteous God, the God of the universe, could he rightly involve himself in the affairs of humanity in a way that would bring captivity and oppression to his own people? It was not just that God was at work in places other than Israel, but that his work would actually appear in Habakkuk's eyes, in his mind, and in his context to work against his own people. That God would raise up another nation, one considered as enemy to the people of Israel. This was an utterly outright and shocking consideration for Habakkuk. Habakkuk's bubble was burst. God's response did not measure up or meet the expectations Habakkuk had. It was far from what the prophet had anticipated. What would be Habakkuk's response to God's difficult revelation? And how might we today handle disappointment with God? And what should be our response when God's answers are not exactly what we expect or anticipate? And so as we continue our study through Habakkuk's prophecy, we're going to Take our Bibles and turn today to Habakkuk chapter 1. Again, we're going to start in verse 12 today and work our way through to chapter 2, verse 1. That's Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll start in verse 12 and work our way to chapter 2, verse 1. And before we read, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we come before you today as a people who are part of a nation that is mourning, that is grieving. What we've witnessed in our country the last two weeks, in many ways, is unspeakable. In every way, they, these actions grieve your heart. And Lord, they cause us to mourn and we turn to you and, and we don't have answers. We see 21 lives in Uvalde, Texas, taken. A number of others in Buffalo, taken. And we might find ourselves in the same seat as the prophet, asking the same questions. And yet, God, we do that knowing that you are a God who is able to receive them, who desires to receive them. You've created us. You can handle all of us. All of our emotions. All of our questions. All of our thoughts. All of our inabilities to recognize, to see. We do ask how long, O oh Lord. We do ask why, O 
O Lord. And we hope that by turning to your word and looking at the example of the prophet today, that within his message and within the patterns of his interaction with you, you will teach us, you will inform us, you will instruct us, and you will remind us of who you are. You are from everlasting, Lord, and you have a perspective that none of us could ever have. Lord, with one hand we can cling to Christ and know that with just a word all of our problems could be vanquished and with another we hold on to the hope of the future kingdom that will come where words like sin and death will no longer be part of the vocabulary. Not even a part. We long for that place. We desire that place. So let us even today, through the power of your Spirit within us, live that longing in the spaces that you've placed us. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2. Verse 1, this is the prophet Habakkuk speaking to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them, speaking of the Babylonians, for reproof. You who are pure of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, the Babylonians, bring them, all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In Habakkuk's response to this, disappointment, this disappointing revelation that he received from the Lord, he goes back, falls back onto the character of God, the solid rock. We observe the response of a prophet who, though he is both saddened and shocked by what he received from God, he comes to the right place. How could a good and benevolent God raise up and empower a people group largely disloyal to himself in order to bring judgment to his own people? And verse 11 reminds us, if you look back above, that the strength of the Babylonians was found in the reliance of their own strength and their own effort. Yet Habakkuk will not fall into the same trap. His response, his disappointment, 
with God's response is to draw closer, to question further, to see clearer. Verse 12 reveals to us that though Habakkuk has serious questions and concerns for God, he has not lost his faith, nor has he abandoned his dependency on God. His plea begins by calling upon God's eternal character. Friends, we know that the time of the Babylonians, this nation that God was empowering, it was fleeting, but God is a God who is from everlasting. And the truth of God's everlasting presence, His eternal rule and reign is comforting and should be comforting when we face seasons of distress and turmoil. God has the greatest vantage point. If He raises some up for a season, by His eternal nature, He's also able to bring some low. And all of this according to His purposes. And this reality has not led Habakkuk to abandon his faith. Rather, he affirms his dependency on God in the very next line of verse 12. What does he say in the second line of verse 12? Take a look. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Two instances of that word, my And in the question of verse 12, Habakkuk is drawing both on God's transcendence, that God is high above his creation, yet he's also drawing on his imminence, that God is near to us. He is ours. He is for us. In verse 12, the prophet has embraced both the eternal and the troubling here and now realities that he lives in. Mortality is confronting the immortal. And we are reminded, friends, that God is not subject to the sweeping wind of the Babylonian Empire. Remember, that's how the prophet described them just a few verses before, that they were like a sweeping wind with no limit. No one could hold them in. God was not subject to them. Rather, He is a God who remains subject over his creation. He is able to lift up and still able to bring down. He's set apart. He does not participate in, nor does he approve of the sins or injustices of the Babylonians. A people that God raises up that do not recognize that their authority and power come from God will not be quick to live, reign, or rule in a way That will please him. And this is the testimony, friends, of the Babylonians. It's also the testimony of many nations throughout history, throughout the world. And yet God's eternal purposes and plans will not be thwarted by our abuse of the power and privilege that we are given by him. The example of the prophet in his distress is to return to the attributes of God, to remind himself of God's promises. This is reflected in the third line of verse 12. Take a look at what he says in the third line. We shall not die. Now, quick pause. And if you want to blow up my inbox this week, I give you permission. Blow it up. It's okay. There is quite a bit of translational difficulties with this particular line 
in Habakkuk's prophecy. I'm, I'm expecting many of your Bibles probably have a footnote there. And time does not allow us to dive into them today. However, I would offer that if you'd like to learn a bit more about why this line gives Bible translators an issue, please email me this week and I'll pass along some resources to you. Personally, I land on what would be the minority translation in this passage. It would translate the line this way, and you may have it in a footnote in your Bible. You are immortal, speaking of God where the prophet is continuing to describe the character and nature of God. However, for the purposes of our study today, I'm going to work from the majority translation where scholars would refer to the prophet's reliance on God's testimony of keeping his covenantal promises, which is why some scholars believe he says, we shall not die, leaning back on God's covenantal promises. The Israelite people would not be completely wiped out because God had made covenantal promises with the nation. Surely he would not neglect his promises. He would be faithful just as he always was. And will Habakkuk and the nation still trust their rock and their protector even when he has chosen in his divine plan to establish another nation for their judgment and reproof. And upon further consideration, the prophet finds this more and more difficult to digest. Look at verse 13. You, you are too just to tolerate evil. You are unable to condone wrongdoing. Why do you put up with such treacherous people? Why do you say nothing when the wicked devour those more righteous than they? Is it possible For a God who cannot look upon wrong to sit idle as he watches traitors plunder and oppress his own people. Would God truly remain silent while the wicked swallow up the nation or perhaps the man who is more righteous than they? And then, friends, we remember As Christ followers living in the age of the church, the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus on the cross. Bearing the weight of the world's sins, there was no one in history who could rival him in righteousness. A perfect man, a sinless man, hanging on the cross and in his dying breath, he looks to the heavens and echoes a question very similar to Habakkuk's feelings. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we are reminded that sometimes when it appears to us that God is silent and or idle, as it does to the prophet here, that he is still the God who is restoring and making all things new. He is the God of redemption, the God of salvation. He is the Holy One who's able to bring beauty from ashes. Jesus' temporary yet brutally violent pain on the cross secured our eternal hope as His blood became the purchase of our redemption. The prophet reminds God in verse 14, 
of a very important truth. You made people like fish in the sea, like animals in the sea that have no ruler. And friends, we're reminded that the practices of human bondage, slavery, imperialism, captivity, and those behaviors that are related are outside of God's intended, created purposes. And yet, because of our own sin, all of these things have and still exist in the world today. And so Habakkuk, in these first few verses of his response, of his disappointment, has detailed for us and reminded us of some comforting attributes pertaining to God, while also demonstrating a continued dependency on God, even in the midst of distressing and troubling news. A question then for us today, church, would be this, living in the light of Jesus, can we do the same? Even in weeks such as the past few weeks in our nation, can we do the same? Is even now the appropriate time to remind ourselves of God's eternal attributes and qualities, His original intention and design for His creation, and our continual need for and dependence on Him, even when we don't see clearly and cannot fully understand. And we might note that these habits of the prophet are still as relevant and effective today as they were long ago. In his disappointment with God, the prophet is moved and compelled to draw closer to him and to remind himself of God's goodness and faithfulness. And so, with his eyes and his heart set on the solid rock, the prophet will now begin to consider the sinking sand of what God was raising up, this Neo-Babylonian empire. In verses 15 to 17. What we find in the description of the Babylonians is that humans who God has designed and created to be free often find joy and satisfaction in enslaving and taking one another as captives. Some biblical scholars have contemplated how significant the descriptions in verses 15 to 17 would have been if indeed the Babylonians led the people of Jerusalem to their captivity through the fish gate. So what you see on the screen before you is what is known as the fish gate. It's one of the primary gates on the wall that surrounds the outside of Jerusalem. And it was the prophet Zephaniah, who's a contemporary to Habakkuk, who also prophesied about judgment that was coming upon Judah. And he spoke about a time when there would be great weeping at the fish gate. Zephaniah 1.10, On that day, says the Lord, a loud cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the city's newer district, and a loud crash from the hills. In Habakkuk's description in verses 15 to 17, the prophets referring to the practices of captivity that were common to his day. 
And what you see on the screen in this particular image, uh, where you see the, this is an Assyrian man, he's holding a spear in one hand, and he's blinding one of his captives with that spear, and in the other hand, he's holding a fish line. At the end of that line would have been a hook, and the Babylonians followed in this practice that they learned from the Assyrians, that if you take a hook, now imagine... If you take a hook connected to a string and you put it through the lip of a prisoner and then you string it to another prisoner and put another hook through that prisoner's lip, those prisoners are going to be a lot less likely to try to escape and run. And so what we read in verses 15 to 17 is in many ways to the people that were living at the time Habakkuk was prophesying a very literal fear, something that was a very real part of people who would be taken into captivity. Look at verse 15. The Babylonian tyrant pulls them all up with a fish hook. He hauls them in with his throw net. When he catches them in his drag net, he is very happy. The other images you have on the screen, the image in the bottom corner is the image uh, that's depicted by an artist of the nation being led into captivity from Jerusalem into Babylon. And at the top is actually an archaeological find. It's what they would call a steel that actually gives account of this very situation in historical archaeological literature. We know this happened, not just because the Bible says so, but also because history confirms its reality. But I want to think about this a little bit. These are people, men and women, being taken into captivity with tools that would be used for fishing. Now, if we press this imagery out into the New Testament... During the life and ministry of Jesus, there's a very fascinating contrast that arises regarding how the prophets perceived fishers of men and how Jesus described turning his disciples into fishers of men. For the prophets, a fisher of men would have been a violent and oppressive enslaver who took captives and showed no mercy. For Jesus, a fisher of men was one who brought the good news of peace with God, light, life, and freedom to those who were in darkness. For the prophet, a fisher of men was someone that led people away into a hopeless future. For Jesus, a fisher of men brought someone into light of eternal, hopeful future. For the prophet, a fisher of men, destroyed communities and tore apart families. For Jesus, a fisher of men, invited community and brought people together as brothers and sisters, children in the family of God. Jesus redeemed the illustration. And his vision for what it meant was so compelling that the Bible tells us that his first disciples dropped their nets and followed him immediately. Consider that. It's amazing. 
Back in our prophecy, Habakkuk continues to describe how slavery and captivity have benefited the Babylonians. So much so that they were living in luxury, having plenty of food, more than enough to eat, because of the work of those they took captive. Celebrating their own success, celebrating their own power, their sacrificing and making offerings essentially to the work of their own hands. Verse 16, because of his success, he offers sacrifices to his throw net. He burns incense to his drag net, for because of them he has plenty of food and more than enough to eat. Ignoring the lives of the people they enslave and hold captive, they worship their own power and strength. Once again, believing by their own military efforts and their own military advancement that they would be wealthy, strong, and prosperous. And you know, friends, though God may allow this behavior to take place, He's neither pleased nor is He honored by it. He takes no joy in the oppression and enslavement of his creation. And so in his final question to the Lord here in the first part of his prophecy, Habakkuk simply asks in verse 17, is this going to go on forever? Now remember, from his limited vantage point, it seems this way. First, it's his indictment on his own people, his own nation. But now he knows of the injustice of the Babylonian captivity. Is this the way it's going to be forever? Is he then just going to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Friends, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with God, perhaps most of us at some point in our life have considered this question as well. I mean, sometimes we say it this way. Similar sentiments, but we say, man, this has got to be the last days because how long could this go on? How many of us have felt that way? It's the same sentiments. Lord, is this going to go on forever? Wars, rumors of wars, violence, everywhere it seems like. And we anticipate, and the prophet anticipates, a God who will respond. A God who's interested in answering our questions. A God who's interested in answering the prophet's questions. To assuage our pleas and our fears, our anxieties. A God who has a strong testimony throughout history of speaking words that give hope life, and direction. He's not like the other prophets who refused to pay attention when God had set them up as watchmen for the people of Israel. Habakkuk is different than those prophets. And so in his response, Habakkuk is going to move to higher ground. Now, I thought of it this way. When I was a student in school, I had a football coach one year who told us, he came on, he was brought on, uh, he was new, we were new players to him, and one of the first things he told us when he came to the school, he brought all the players in, he met with us, and he said, I want every one of you student athletes sitting 
in the front of the classroom. When I walk by your classrooms during the day and peek in, I want to see you in the front and I want to see you with a pencil in your hand. Every single one of you. Why? What, what, what can we do in the front? Well, one, we can't hide, right? There's no hiding in the front. The teacher's right there. But two, there's less distractions. We can focus. We can see. We can hear. Eager students truly desiring to learn to see and to apply material as it's taught by their instructors often find themselves in the front of the class. My dad would encourage me to do that too. If I was struggling in a class, where are you sitting? Sit up front. Sit up front. It's a strategic position. It helps us be laser focused on clearly receiving the content that's coming. So look what the prophet does in chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. Isn't that interesting? The prophet could have used the word what? What verb is interesting there? See. What word do we expect? Hear. But he wants to see. And from the very beginning of his prophecy, this is amazing, seeing is a very important thing. Chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that what we are reading is the oracle that Habakkuk saw, not heard. The prophet is not seeing what he wants to see in the world that he inhabits. And in his mind, his God is not hearing the things that Habakkuk wants him to hear. So he's crying out for help. And in his mind, the Lord is not hearing him. The prophet and the Lord are not seeing eye to eye, nor are they hearing ear to ear. While Habakkuk sees injustice, sin, and iniquity, it appears to him that the Lord is standing idly by, looking upon it. Those are words that he uses in his prophecy. The prophet sees with his eyes in the first part of chapter 1, destruction, violence, strife, contention, a paralyzed law, perverted justice. It makes perfect sense then in God's first response that he calls the prophet to do what? What does he call the prophet to do in his first response? Look. Look and see things differently differently. God is working, but in hearing how God is at work, the prophet remains in disbelief. The prophet's still not seeing eye to eye with God, so in verse 13 again, he reminds God of what? God's purer what? Eyes. Eyes, seeing is all throughout this, that are not able to do what? See evil or look upon wrong. Why then does God look idly at this wrongdoing? Lord, I cannot see, 
what you are doing or how all of this is working together for our good and for your glory. So now I'm climbing higher in order to look out and to see what you will say. Most often we hear what someone says. But in the prophecy of Habakkuk, we find a man who desires to see how what God says about himself and the world works itself out in the world which the prophet inhabits. Again, in his doubt and disbelief, he is not abandoning God, nor is he dismissing him. Rather, even from his illustration here, there are allusions that this turmoil, this tragedy, this distressing news from God is drawing the prophet closer to the one whose name is what? Strong tower. Climb. Climb on. Go up high. Set your mind on the things where? Above. Not on the things of this earth. The God who is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in time of need, is able to hear us. He's able to hold us. He sees us, our pain, our hurt. Habakkuk is dutifully fulfilling his role as a prophet to the nation. This is what the prophets were to do, and they were abandoning their posts left and right, but not Habakkuk. He's going to stay. He's going to persevere. He's going to endure. Clinging to God, he goes higher. Even when it's difficult to dissect and interpret. And as he looks For the Lord's next response, he's anticipating that further dialogue will be needed, right? I mean, that's what he says at the end of verse 1 in chapter 2. Look, I'm anticipating the Lord's going to respond, but I am pretty sure I'm going to have more questions regarding all this. He knows his complaint most likely is not going to be completely resolved. And for the Lord's response, we're going to have to wait for next week's message. <laughs> so how might these realities move us forward in a greater love for God and a greater love for one another? This is incredible stuff coming from the prophet. First, difficult news, events, and circumstances should move us closer to God even if it means we draw close in pain, in turmoil, and distress. Friends, that's okay. It's okay. And it's okay because God is able to receive and resolve our difficult questions, our pain-filled emotions, and our disappointment with Him. You know, we can be disappointed with God, and He's not disappointed with us. That's pretty incredible to fathom and to think about. That we can be disappointed with God and he's not necessarily disappointed with us. He created us. He knows us perfectly and intimately. 
We cannot hide from him. So these emotions that we feel, these pains that we feel that are real and loss and grief and all of the unexpected things that happen in our world, it's not worth hiding from him in those emotions and feelings. He created us. He knows us. Pour it out before him. He's able to take it and receive it and carry it. He is a massively, massively big God. Our God is listening. He's the God of all comfort. And friends, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 reminds us that He longs to comfort us in our pain and our brokenness and affliction. God's not going to abandon His people even in captivity. Right? Right. Amen. Thanks, Helen. That's right. He's not going to. We read the book of Daniel. That's the next chapter. He doesn't abandon them. He stays with them. He comforts them, even in captivity. When circumstances and events create a fog of pain and discomfort, we might look to the events of the last few weeks in our nation. It's foggy to me, friends. It's painful and discomforting to me. It's good, though, in these moments to redirect our minds and reestablish our hearts on the truth of God's word. This is our higher ground. There's good truth here. Pastor Tom, thanks so much for reading from Psalms today before you prayed. Trust. We can't always see. And as a community of faith, Set on building one another up in love, encouraging one another in Christ, and bearing one another's burdens, we should be quick to share in one another's sufferings. You know, I think if I was in Habakkuk's shoes and I had to deliver this difficult message to my people, would I be brave and bold enough to do it? I don't know. You know what happened to Jeremiah, right? They threw him in a well. Well, the king tried to have him executed. These are hard messages. Hard things to receive. Hard things to hear. And it's a hard world that we live in. And as a body of Christ, friends, this is one of the things that we've been given. We've been called to do to bear one another's burdens, to share in one another's sufferings, to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. We should not suffer by ourselves. We are a community who suffers together for the glory of God, clinging to the hope of Christ. That's the role that we can play in one another's lives. And so next week, we will turn And we will see how God responds to the questions of the prophet. And we will find in the prophecy one of the most infamous quotes and verses from Habakkuk's message in chapter 2, verse 4. It's one that Paul uses on two different occasions in his New Testament writings. Before we get there, as our team comes, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for its truth and for its power. Thank you that you work through it, that you change our hearts and our minds through it. And Lord, we acknowledge today that we do find ourselves, in light of the circumstances we live in today, often 
asking similar questions and having similar thoughts. But help us, Lord, cling to the knowledge of who you are. Help us to see the revelation that the prophet Habakkuk did not have the opportunity to see, and that is the person of your son Jesus that you have sent, that died for us, and that rose again, showing us, giving us a taste of the victory over sin and death, the victory that will one day be final and ultimate. Lord, help us hold on to that hope in difficult days. Help us to remember that you are our God who hears, that you are a big God who can carry all of our emotions, all of our feelings, and all of our pain, and all of our disappointment and struggle. So Lord, help us to wrestle, but help us to do it in a way that honors you and glorifies you and lifts you up and shines the light of Christ in the communities that you've planted us in. And we want to give you the glory for how you work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.